welcome to A Passion to Serve. My name is Don Kadicki and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a big fan of storytelling and during the podcast we'll be sharing real human stories about migrant and seasonal farm workers and the work that's being done on their behalf. For example, do you know about the contributions of migrant and seasonal farm workers to the United States economy and the challenges these farm workers face on a daily basis? What about services for farm worker youth in order to lead them on the path towards self-discovery and self-sufficiency? And what about lessons learned by leaders who have dedicated their lives to serving others through a variety of programs? These stories and so much more will be part of A Passion to Serve. I hope you decide to join us on this path of discovery. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of A Passion to Serve. During this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Amy Liebman, Director of Environmental and Occupational Health at Migrant Clinicians Network, or MCN. Ms. Liebman has devoted her career to improving the safety and health of disenfranchised populations, overseeing programs ranging from integrating occupational and environmental medicine into primary care to designing worker safety interventions. During our interview, we discussed the coronavirus or COVID-19, along with preventative measures that all of us can implement in our daily lives. Amy references the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, during our talk, as well as colonias that are located on the United States and Mexican border. Colonias are residential areas that may lack some of the most basic living necessities, such as potable water, septic or sewer systems, electricity, paved roads, or safe and sanitary housing. Please enjoy my conversation with Amy Liebman. So, Amy Liebman, thank you for participating in A Passion to Serve. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be talking with you today. So, Amy, we're going to be spending the majority of our time talking about the coronavirus or COVID-19, but I would like to first start out just to learn a little bit more about your background and how you became interested in this work. Okay, so I have always been passionate and interested um, in uh immigration in our country. I'm um, the third generation, third generation immigrant myself. And uh, that led me in undergraduate and graduate school to think about Latin America and think about human rights and uh, all sorts of things that were happening in the, the 80s in Latin America. And, and then I moved to the border in the early 1990s um, right after NAFTA was passed. Right. Mm-hmm. And there I really honed in on my passion for working with immigrant communities. I had a job where I was working on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border in colonias, which did not have running water and sewage. And we did a, a hygiene education program, really uh, working with folks in the community, building on, on their knowledge and their expertise and their experiences and using what we call today the community health worker model. And we, we trained uh, folks from the community to be community health workers. And they in turn trained us because we learned so much from them. And they trained their neighbors about ways to safely store their water um, and how to disinfect it. And in the backdrop of working with all these colonias, I really began to think about the immigration and migration situation, what drove people to the border at that time. Um, And then uh, a few years later, I moved to uh, the Eastern shore of Maryland, 
uh, where I currently live with my family and my, my husband and my two sons. And uh, I began working for Migrant Clinicians Network because they were really interested in environmental health. And that was the kind of work that I was doing on the border and uh, hired me to work um looking at how we can help clinicians um, improve how they address environmental health concerns among their um, migrant and immigrant patients. And uh, I started with MCN in 1999, and I grew that program. Uh, and now um, I'm the Director of Environmental Occupational Health, and I have spent the last 20 years really working to do various programs, advocacy work, uh, interventions, educational outreach to help um, immigrant workers and their families um, improve their their health, and so um, and that's been done a number of different different projects, and so that has led me um, to where we are talking today, where I'm really passionate about our farm workers and immigrant workers that are now our essential workers um, who are working in the COVID nineteen um, era. Well, it's really interesting. It was almost like you read my mind, Amy, because um, we're going to, as we get into this the discussion, I really, I'm curious to find out what were some takeaways from your experience on the U.S.-Mexico border that may fit into what we're currently experiencing. But before we head into that conversation, could you talk a little bit about, about what the community health worker model is? Sure. So the community health worker model is something that we've learned from our, our neighbors in other countries, um, from Mexico, Guatemala, China, um, all sorts of countries, um, where um, we really look to this idea of education or educación popular, um, adult participatory education, where folks who may not have a lot of formal education have a lot of real real life experiences that inform how they think and they actually know um, quite a bit about their their daily survival and what they need to do to survive and so um, the community health worker model really builds on on that knowledge looking for you know leaders in the community that are are hungry for some additional education and want to to pass that uh, education and information on um, to their neighbors. So it's a model that has been applied both in, in curative medicine and, and preventative medicine. Um, in some cases, community health workers are administering vaccines, giving out oral uh, rehydration therapies, helping to build latrines. Um, and then this, this model has been, well, in the 90s when I was on the U.S.-Mexico border, it was just beginning to take foothold in the, in the United States. And, and now a lot of community health workers are actually um, hired and, and they're credentialed and they work for community health centers and, and they, they really serve as um, a nice link between the community and, and, and health and healthcare access. And so um, you see a lot of community health worker programs that deal with diabetes and helping to educate folks about managing their diabetes or cardiovascular disease. And it's a, a very powerful model um, and can have a really important impact on health. And I've continued to work on, with the community health worker model on all kinds of environmental health projects and um, also with um, uh, pesticides and 
recently I, I did a community health worker program looking at uh, dairy workers uh, as community health workers about dairy health and safety. So it could be applied in, in a number of settings, just recognizing the strength and the experiences of the people that you're working with. So I know that with through the Migrant Clinicians Network or MCN that there's just a vast network of local community health centers that are providing a variety of services. With the community health worker model, are those individuals, are they participating in more of a volunteer type of position or role with the community health centers? Or is it, does it, does it vary at each within local? within each local community as to what their role is with the community health centers? It, it varies with each community health center and with each program. And so um, you're mentioning community health centers that they are, um, you know, standalone nonprofit organizations in communities across the country. Um, and they do receive federal funding um, in part and, and also some private funding. And uh, many of them have very wonderful, innovative models in which they have adopted the community health worker model um, as an outreach tool to, to better reach um, some of their, their disenfranchised uh, populations that they're trying to work with um, and to, to promote health. Great. Well, thank you for that background information. And now I want to segue and, and talk a little bit about the coronavirus or COVID-19. I know a couple of weeks ago that you did a live Facebook live event where you talked about COVID-19, but I just know it seems like new information is being provided to us each and every day. So what we knew two weeks ago is changing and evolving, but could you start out with talking a little bit about what coronavirus or COVID-19 is and what are some of the basic precautions that all of us need to be taking into consideration and implementing right now? Okay, so um, COVID-19 uh, is a virus in the family of coronaviruses, um, uh, similar to SARS and, and MERS, um, and it's spreading faster and affecting many more people than these previous viruses. And so there, there's lots of viruses, you know, that we're familiar with, like influenza or the flu or the common cold. And what makes this COVID-19 different is that it's a new or novel virus. And it's, it's unknown. It's an unknown virus. And our immune system really doesn't know what, what to do with it. And then there's no vaccine and nor is there a cure at this time. Um. And so uh, the basic prevention um, methods are the ones that we've been hearing about since the beginning that are still so important. So when I say preventive methods, there's lots of ways to prevent it in terms of different types of interventions. But the, let me start with what we as individuals and families can do. And as individuals, the it's incredibly important that we're washing our hands as often as we possibly can um, with soap and water for 20 seconds. So you can sing a song, you can sing happy birthday. There's lots of other songs that last 20 seconds. Um, if soap and water are not available, hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol um, is, a, is a, a, an okay substitute. And then we're talking about what we're now starting to call physical distance, right? Maintaining a distance of, of six feet um, uh, between people. And of course, using your, your sneezing and coughing etiquette, coughing and sneezing into your, um, your crook of your elbow rather, rather than into your hands. Because you want to avoid 
getting your hands dirty because then your hands will touch things. They'll touch other people. And then that's how it spreads. The other thing that we as individuals and families can do is that we should be cleaning, you know, these common surfaces that we're touching like doorknobs um, and countertops, um, cleaning them regularly um, so that uh, we get rid of the vi- get rid of the pathways of this virus as much as possible. So that's what we as um, individuals um, can can do. And this sounds so basic um, for something that's so so. Uh, you, you think we in modern medicine we'd have more more um, we, we'd be more advanced, but that's that's the basic stuff that we can do to prevent it. Right. And the other pre- the other prevention stuff um, that is working really well in other countries um, is the uh, widespread testing, and that is something that we are hearing our public health officials pushing for, and it just is something that um, uh, we're right now we're by and large. Uh, gearing up to do some more testing. But at this moment, at the time that we're discussing, a lot of the testing is being done on those that are very sick and being admitted to the hospital. Do you have any sense, is there any timeline or time frame when we think that there might be more test kits that are going to be available for more than just individuals who are showing the symptoms of COVID-19? Yeah, I, I don't have a great answer for you on that. Um, I wish we had as many tests as were needed, but right now I, I know that we don't have them and I'm not sure what the timeline's looking like at this point. Okay. So one of the things you did talk about during the live Facebook event too was what, you know, the farm worker concerns, both health and employment related. And I didn't know if that has changed a whole lot. Here in Michigan, we're on lockdown pretty much except for essential services like the majority of the states are at. Um, we're starting to get some inquiries from farm worker families. We're starting to see some of them returning here to Michigan. What from your experience are those primary concerns? And are you starting to hear from any of the local community centers about what some of the challenges are that they are encountering right now? Okay. So I'm going to start with the concerns and then we'll talk about some of the challenges. Um, so, you know, on any given day, this is a population that um, when it comes to healthcare and healthcare access, we have a lot of concerns um, for a number of reasons. This is a population that um, has uh, speaks a different language, um, largely speaks Spanish, um, may not have um, a lot of formal education, may have low levels of literacy, um, and often is... Um, living below the poverty line. Uh, and, you know, and also has varying uh, documentation status with authorization to work in the United States. So a lot of these components, um, you know, further disenfranchise our, our, our farm worker population. And that's on a, that's on a given day. Um, and then we throw this COVID-19 virus on, um, situation on top of our farm workers who have now been declared essential workers who are going to be part of the workforce helping to put food on our table and so our concerns are 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 multifaceted one one is at a very basic level we want to make sure farm workers are getting evidence-based information that's drilled down and very simple in a language that they understand and they understand sort of what resources they have to access in order to implement some of those preventative methods. So 
We want to make sure they understand the importance of hand washing and that hand washing and soap uh, facilities are provided to them. Uh, we want to make sure that they understand the importance of social distancing and, you know, and that the their housing is set up so that they are um, further apart in in the rooms where they're sleeping, that there is good ventilation in there, that there is disinfection in there, that a farmer has a plan um, in place about what how he's going to help um, his or her uh, workers uh, manage. Is, is there a place for, if a worker gets sick, is there a separate location? So there's a lot of um, sort of design pieces that we want the, the grower or the farmer to think about in terms of the workers. And that's gonna be require, you know, helping to do some of the education, helping to get the resources to the workers, and then making sure that all the resources are in place. The other piece is transportation, right? Um, we right. want transportation so that folks aren't crowded into vans and buses, that there, there's the ability to keep that physical distance of six feet, that there's there's um, uh, ventilation, windows are, are rolled down. So there's a lot, number of things that need to happen and the constant disinfection of, of, the, trans, of the vehicles, of, of the housing um, that, that needs to happen. And I know those are, uh, uh, again, on a given day, some of these are, are really hard. And so we're, now we're asking um, for more, but these are the folks that are putting food on our table and we need to do our best to take care of them. That's both all of us who are farmer worker advocates, the farmers who, who need them um, to pick their crops and then the people who need them to eat, eat their food. So these are, one of the things that I've been talking a lot is that um, you know, farmer, farm workers are not often given, you know, health benefits, we call them health benefits, right? Or they're not right. um, give, given paid sick leave. You know, these are not benefits. These are public health policies. And when our farm workers feel sick, they can know that they will not starve because they will have compensation for when they, for the time that they need to recover, instead of trying to hide their sickness or work through the fact that they're sick or, or just struggle, they, they deserve paid sick leave. Um, and then, you know, if they're, are, they are in a situation where they're being housed by the grower, they, they need to be in a place where they can recover and, and food needs to be provided for them. And, um, you know, they need to be separated from, from other workers. You know, I listened to a presentation yesterday and someone, a representative from the North Carolina Growers Association was on. And it really sounded like overall they were really being very mindful that they were taking very proactive steps to make sure that that everything that you just talked about is going to be implemented. Because from their perspective, I mean, hopefully, and I think that they sincerely want or had the best interest of of the farm worker in mind and they also realize too that they have the concern that if they are not stepping up and they're not taking these precautions that the h2a worker or some of these other farm workers they are not going to be available to them and one thing that i have a concern about which was brought up at that time i think larger associations like north carolina's or 
more established groups of people would probably be able to implement some of those precautionary measures, prevention measures, but it's the independent farm labor contractor, which they don't really, you know, it's harder with the smaller independent farm labor contractor to ensure that those types of measures or precautions are going to be in place. And I don't know if you've had any experience with that. Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to sort of put out there that, you know, growers um, and employers come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and we have a lot of um, growers out there that, that are super concerned and are, are willing to take the steps necessary um, to protect the workers. Um, but we also have some growers that either because of um, economic challenges or how the workplace is, organ is organized, that there, there's lots of challenges or that we have unscrupulous um, folks out there who are taking advantage of, of this labor pool. Um, it, it, it's a very wide range that we're, we're, we're talking about. Um, so uh, we are concerned that what, regardless of the type of employer you are, whether you're a contractor or a big grower, that you're taking these precautions seriously. Um, we are hearing reports uh, there was an article, I'm not sure which paper it was in, um, was talking about um, Idaho, farm workers in Idaho. And, you know, there's a perception out there. And I think that this is not unique to the, to the farm worker community, this idea that, oh, if you're between 18 and 30, you're right. young and hardy and you're not vulnerable to this virus. And um, while there is... Why there is more risk um, if you are are older or have pre-existing conditions for for sure, it doesn't make you um, not your potential is still there regardless of your of your age. Um, and so the precautions are are still needed for that young group. In fact, one might argue because um, many of the young people might be asymptomatic um, and not even know that they're sick all the more important to sort of do that physical distancing and to do these safe practices. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, um, you know, something to, to recognize. I, I don't know. It's, there's a lot of challenges in terms of the, what's happening to these uh, farm workers when, when these practices aren't being employed. Um, there were, were, there's just, it's just challenging right now because so many of us um, who need to be advocating for them or we ourselves are working from home but uh, we do need to sort of keep up the pressure on about the rights of this essential workforce and that practicing the same preventative measures that are being recommended for the general population is needed for this labor force um, perhaps even more for this labor so labor source force, excuse me, um, because they are putting food on our table. We have like a, we have a common interest, all of us, for these workers to be healthy. Um, exactly. and, and that's where, you know, we all need to be sort of advocating for these protections for them. Well, you know, Governor Whitmer in Michigan is, she's been having periodic press conferences. And one of the more recent ones that she had, she even said that I don't know if the virus is somehow um, evolving or not, but we have some really sick younger people who are contracting the virus. And even if that wasn't the case, there has to be that mindset that 
even if you will be okay, you don't want to be responsible for making someone else become sick. And something that's important for me to mention too, that everything that we're talking about, all this really good, important information people can find on the Migrant Clinicians Network website and Facebook page. And I also want to ask you, are there other sites that provide very good resources for people to take advantage of? Sure. Our main point that we are making about the information that we need to get to the community is that we are desperate for people to take a moment and make sure that the information that they're processing, giving out, telling people is evidence-based information. And so you have to, you know, make sure that it's coming from a trusted source. MCN is doing a lot of work to make sure that the materials that we're putting on our website are evidence-based. The Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, the Pan-American Health Organization, uh, those all have really good resources in English and, and Spanish and other languages. Uh, we're, we're MCN's working as fast as we can to get, you know, more resources up there. We don't want to overwhelm people. That's the, the other piece of it. The, the information uh, that's needed out there right at this moment is, is pretty basic. And we want to make sure that for folks that are working with farm workers, that is provided in a language that they understand Right. And, and in, you know, using um, simple words and, and images, recognizing the, the, the literacy level. So do you know, I haven't heard anything definitively yet. I know there's a little bit of concern of whether the virus can somehow spread to our produce. Is there any new or updated information on that concern? No, right now there's absolutely no evidence that um, the virus um can contaminate food. Um, now that's not to say that food that's wrapped and there's this, there's plastic s- surfaces. There's a, there's some information out there about you know how long the virus lasts on, on certain types of surfaces, but uh, that information is a little bit challenging because we don't really know. Sort of, we're not able to apply that, take that, and look at how that is functioning all the time in the real world when you have ventilation and you have time. So I think what we do know, even though there are studies that talk about the different surfaces and how long the virus may or may not last on there, that they are out there. um, We do know that there is no evidence right now that the virus lasts um, on, on produce. Okay. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked a little bit about your work and experience on the U.S.-Mexico border and working with the colonias where they did not have water or sewage in place. And were there some takeaways from your experiences there that you are applying to this current um, environment that we're in? Well, one is this idea of of a trusted source. And that is something that's at the core of the community health worker model. And the idea is that the community health worker is a trusted source. Um, and so I think that, that that idea of making sure the place where your information comes from is a trusted source is, is, is really, really important. Um, the, other, the other piece that I think about when I think about um, the work that was we did on the on the Mexican border in Colonias is that people 
have a lot of, have the ability, they have basic knowledge that they use every day in their lives um, to survive. And we can, we can use that um, and, and work with that to help, to help foster the education process. We shouldn't think because someone doesn't have a lot of formal education or someone speaks a language that isn't the same as ours that they're not going to understand. There's, there's lots of ways to um, both to, to, to have a, an exchange of ideas um, and, and, and learning and, and people can and are able to, to get the information. They, they just need to be able to have access to it. Okay. You know, Amy, we're definitely in strange times. Um, I'm working from home and I will go for daily walks to try to maintain my sanity. And you walk by people and you're keeping the six foot distance and, it's interesting that some people are still pretty outgoing and friendly, but there is this sense of unease at times when I'm encountering people on my walks. And I just bring that up that how do we counteract some of that, that fear or that level of concern. And what I have found for myself is the work that I see my staff doing that I see other community and agency partners currently doing right now. It's amazing to me how resourceful all of us are becoming just because we don't have any other alternative that we have to do things long distance. We have to do things with a sense of keeping our staff safe, but also making sure that there's a voice and that there are people who are going to be available to assist our farm worker community. Um, what are you experiencing? What is inspiring you or giving you hope right now during these uh, difficult times? That's a, that's a great question because I think we all, we all need some inspiration right now, don't we? Um, (laughs) and so one thing I have to say is that, um, I absolutely am so lucky and I love my colleagues at MCN. Um, we recognize, uh, the challenges that we are up against right away. And we, we dove into the best of our ability to, to really, um, develop, I want to say expertise on this topic to the, the best of our ability so that we were able to pass it along. And so my, my colleagues have just been this incredible um, inspiration um, to, to me. And I actually, like we work virtually a lot because we have offices throughout the country, um, but I, I'm, I'm loving Zoom and I love seeing their faces. Right. <laughs> um, and then at, at home, I have um, two college uh age uh children and they are all home with me um and so and my 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 husband my dog we were we were we were empty nesters a few few weeks ago um and now and now we're not and um i've actually um found joy in having my my boys back home with me um they uh fill our our evenings with with laughter and and that's another thing that is inspiring me um i um I love to laugh and um, their jokes and their silliness and, you know, singing in the house or whatever they're doing um, really just, I find great joy in that. You know, that's a great message. I, I also have a house full of um, kids. I have my daughter, my oldest daughter, my son-in-law and my granddaughter living with us right now, along with one of my other daughters. I have four kids all together and, um, 
the joy that I get from my granddaughter, just her mindset and, and you know how little kids are. It's just, it's wonderful. And it really helps me keep things in perspective along with everything that you said too. I, no one goes into the work that we do, Amy, to get rich, but we do it because we love it. And there really is that dedication and commitment that I don't really know if other industries have that same, um, that passion, their heart, I don't know if, if it's the same or not for them, but I definitely see it in this work that we do here. I want to thank you so much for spending some time and talking with me today on A Passion to Serve. Oh, my, my pleasure. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 8 of A Passion to Serve. And now I have a request for you please leave a voicemail message or send me an email message about topics you want to hear more about. My intent is to use this podcast as a mechanism for all of us to stay informed and connected as we walk through very challenging circumstances. You can use the link provided to leave your voicemail message about topics of interest as well as any other comments about the podcast. You can continue to find a passion to serve on the links provided. Until next time.